The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All and Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Welcome back, everybody. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Kristen Noel Crawley. She's the founder of KNC Beauty, best known for their cult favorite starry eye masks and all natural collagen infused lip masks, which you've no doubt seen all over your Instagram feed. Using her influencer status to influence real change, Kristen has just announced the KNC School of Beauty to help black entrepreneurs navigating the ins and outs of the beauty industry. The best news is that tuition for this virtual program launching this summer will be free and Revlon has already pledged $25,000 on its behalf to the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. Thank you so much for being here and talking to me today. Of course, thank you for having me. Of course. Where am I finding you, Kristen? Where have you been quarantining? I've been quarantining at my house in the suburbs of Los Angeles with my family. We got kind of lucky because my husband and I went on a trip to Mexico right before quarantine happened, and my mom was watching the kids. So she's been here with us the whole time. No. Yeah, it's had its ups and downs, you know, but overall, it's been like a huge blessing just to have someone there to help me with the kids and, you know, help me clean up. And, you know, it's just really nice to have another set of hands. hands. Oh my God. Yes. And also it's so nice because there's so many people who haven't seen their families because you've had to be quarantining. Where does your mom live normally? She lives in Illinois. Okay. So she would not be here otherwise. So she comes a few times a year. But this has been the first time that like, for example, like my son, Luke, who's four, like he is now way more attached to her because he's been with her every day for the past, you know, five months. So it's been good. I think we'll all look back and even as difficult and as stressful as this time has been for everybody and look back and find those moments of silver linings, like having that special time with your mom and your son and having that family time. That you yeah. wouldn't have had otherwise. Like my husband, he's never at home all the time. Like he's always working, you know, from like 10 a.m. and he'll get home at like 9 p.m. And so it was kind of funny, like the first few weeks, my older son, he was like, it's kind of weird having daddy home all the time. And then Is I thought, it too like, much Larry? Did you ever see that Curb episode? <laughs> no, it's just like, it was kind of sad because he's not used to his dad being around all the time because his dad's always at work. So it was sad, but then it was also nice because, you know, we've all got that time together. And even my husband, like he now appreciates being at home. Like I would always complain, like, we need to do this to the house. We need to do this. We need to redo this room. We need to redo that. And he'd be like, what do I care? I'm not even at home to enjoy it, you know? Like, so now he like sees the value in having our house the way that we want it, having like a nice, clean, sacred space. How's it been? Because you guys both work from home. How's that adjustment been? Well, thankfully, like I said, I have my mom here. So um, I've always worked from home. 
So it hasn't been much of an adjustment for me. It's just like the kids are here now. So before they'd both go to school at eight in the morning and they'd come home at three. So I had that whole, before I would work that whole time. And by the time I'm done, they're home from school and I get to spend time with them. The first month or two was challenging just because they don't think that I'm working. Like, I don't know what they think I'm doing. If I'm on my phone, like maybe they think I'm playing games or, you know, they they don't think that I'm like answering emails or like texting with my sales director or whatever. Like, they're just like, put down your phone and play with me. So that was definitely, you know, something that we had to get used to. And so basically what I did was just implement the same schedule. Like, Hey mom, can you watch them until three? And then we can, you know, spend more family time. And then I just, you know, kind of put my phone down. I step away from my office. But, you know, it's just, it's all about balance as with everything. No, and it's been crazy. I don't want to say it's been ungodly because that seems extreme, but my God, has it been, I think anyone who has little kids at home, it has been so intense the last couple of months. Now we are out of school. So that makes it a little bit easier, but trying to do the school thing, trying to balance your own work from home. I sound horrible, but I definitely gave up on the homeschooling thing for my four-year-old because he's in pre-K. Like, I think that that's totally fine. I think if you looked at everything <laughs> that we're going through, I think that there's enough to just get through it and keep your keep your kids feeling yeah. safe and comfortable with everything else that's happening. Yeah. And if you're not going through the shapes and the letters, they're going to survive. You know, well, what we do is we do like life learning. You know what I mean? Like my husband and I had this talk. I was like, how did kids learn before school? Like he'll take Luke out into the garden and have him, you know, and they'll talk about colors and shapes and look at the shape of this leaf and look at like this, you know, it's kind of like just basically learning through everyday life. Which by the way, is just as valuable. Yeah. How's your headspace? It shifts. You know what I mean? I think right now I'm good. In the beginning, it was a little... I don't know exactly. I don't know if I fully grasped what was going on. Towards the middle, I started getting really depressed. I had like multiple mental breakdowns. When the George Floyd situation happened, that was really, really rough. And it was interesting because it's not something that doesn't happen. It happens regularly. But I think the fact that we're all at home with no distractions, it like really made it much more impactful than if we were living like our regular lives, you know what I mean? So waking up to how me and my husband and my sons could potentially be treated is like, it was really tough. So my emotions are kind of all over the place. I have good days and I have bad days. And now I try to consume only like a certain amount of content just because I found myself consuming a lot of violent content every day all day. You know, when you're on Instagram, you're seeing videos, you're seeing the, and it's just, it got to be like really, really heavy for me. So what I do now is I try to just balance it. I try to, you know, put my phone down. I try to do things that make me feel good, like helping others or donating to causes or spreading information or, you know, even just having like conversations with my friends or family or just, you know, connecting with nature. So every day, every week is different, but I think overall things are good. As far as with your sons, obviously you're raising black sons. Is that a conversation that you have with them? Because they're still little. How much do you expose them to? 
that was really tough. My oldest son is 10. And it was like maybe the day after um, George Floyd was killed, like uh, he was just sitting and I just made him something to eat. And it was just me and him. And I, I think he noticed something was off about me. And he was like, what's wrong? And I, I told him, I was like, oh, you know, kids don't know. They don't, unless they're like watching the news or whatever. And we don't really have the news on like that. He's oblivious to what's going on. So he's like, what's wrong? And I told him what happened, you know, a condensed kind of version. And he's like, I mean, just to see his face and his expression change to like, oh my God, why would they do that to him? Why would the police kill him? Why would that, you know, why would that happen? And, you know, like, are they going to kill me? Like, he literally asked me that, like, are they going to kill me? I had to basically tell him, hopefully that won't happen to you. But like, if you ever get stopped by the police, you need to make sure you do this and that, and you need to be very respectful. And then, and then he's like, but, but that guy still got killed. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That's why it's so fucked up. You know, like it was really like my 10 year old could, he could grasp the ridiculousness of the, of the situation. Like, but this guy wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't fighting with him. He wasn't doing anything like that. So why did he still get killed? And it's just like, I don't know. Right. And then obviously I've had different experiences from like my husband, for example, like I am a lighter skinned black woman. So my experience with racism, although I've experienced it, it is never as harsh as like my husband's, for example. Right. So when I'm with him, I notice that we're treated differently. I notice like little, like things like when we used to be in Paris, like when there wasn't Uber, it was just taxis. I would have to go to the corner of any street in Paris and hail a cab because if me and I would have to go by myself. And then once I get the cab, I get in, wait for my husband. He kind of like runs up and hops in. But if it were me and my husband, no, no fail. If, if it were me and my husband on the corner trying to hail a cab, nobody would stop. So it's like things like that. And then I I started having like all these flashbacks of like all these like racial situations that I'd been in before. Like it really got to, and I think my husband said it perfectly. He's like, I think every black person in America is having like a mental breakdown right now because it's like a culmination of just our whole lives and everything that we've experienced. And it's just continually happening, you know? And I'm thinking as a mom, I've, I've done everything that I can to like provide my, my kids with a better life to like get them out of like the the neighborhoods that we grew up in. You know, my husband's from the South side of Chicago. Like I'm from, from the country, but we did not grow up rich at all. And we worked really hard to build. Um, sorry. No, build a life for our sons where, um, we feel like, you know, gives them better opportunities, but at the end of the day, they can be walking down the street in this nice neighborhood and still get stopped and still get killed. And that's really, it's really fucked up, you know? And it's like, how do you come to grasp that no matter what you do, no matter what you, you know, teach your kids, like they could still end up dead because of the color of their skin. It's really sobering. Like you said, First and foremost, you know, we're all at home. We all are in a really sensitive mental place anyways, you know, and a lot of people are dealing with job loss and, and also living in, I think we're all living in fear right now of this sort of un 
known variable that you may or may not expose yourself to, or you may go out and be okay, or you could follow all the protocols and still somehow just mysteriously get. So it feels like you're living in a time of a a horror film. And then I think like what you said when you were talking to Little Dawn is that this is not new information. This unfortunately is a systemic problem that has been going on for years that I'm sure you have always been aware of. But there's this kind of sobering element of having to explain it to a child who's trying to make reason and sense of it, which you know that there's not. And him asking all of the questions that would make sense for a child. But why would they do this, especially with police? Because even now we all have all sorts of mixed emotions when it comes to looking at police. But mm-hmm. for children, they really, for the most part, look at them as representing safety and protection. So I think I know with my own kids, it's a really hard thing to wrap your head around. Also, they're already going through so much right now. And so you're trying to make them feel safe. And at the same time, I think because everyone has been home and everyone is sort of more focused, it's been able to galvanize people in a way that has never happened before. I don't know if you saw any of these memes, but someone said something like, I think it's pretty cool how we all went from baking banana bread to defunding the police in a matter of two weeks. And, and when I think about the ultimate bigger purpose of what we're experiencing right now with this, I have to think that it's all connected where if we weren't all sitting at attention, I don't want to say that that wouldn't have gotten the coverage that it did. And I still think that obviously there would have been just as much outrage But having everybody be able to just say enough is enough and this is so fucked up and we can't take it anymore, I think will be hopefully a real impetus for actual change that we haven't seen before. Yeah, it's definitely a catalyst for that. Like I said, yeah, it's just it's kind of crazy how we're all just at home. I'm still working, but a lot of people aren't working and there's no sports going on, right? There's no entertainment. There's no, no outlet. There's, there's no, yeah. there's nothing to uh, distract you. There's no distractions away from yourself and your feelings either. Exactly. It's an awful thing that's happened, but it happened at this time for a reason. And I see the shift, you know, like even in myself, like I'm, I'm very much into fashion and all of these things. And I, you know, I started realizing like, the amount of shit that I've had to do to be accepted by these fashion brands that like people don't know about, you know, it's like, why? Like, I'm not even interested in those things anymore. Like, obviously I still love clothes and things like that, but I can't really see myself doing what I used to do. There's just such a bigger picture now. Right. You know, that's not even important to me anymore. How has this affected your business? First and foremost, with everything happening with COVID, My impression is that for beauty brands, for wellness products, and for lifestyle companies, it seems to have been a pretty good time where people, like you said, are staying in and it's a little bit like Don and his interest in the house. Yeah. um, Business-wise, surprisingly, things have been good. They've been better than usual. I mean, I know for a lot of people it hasn't, so we definitely feel very blessed in that sense. And then I think with a beauty brand, people have, especially like skincare focused, right? Not necessarily makeup or anything like that. 
people have time to do self-care. They have time to try new products. They have time to let a mask sit on their face for 20 minutes. And then with this new movement of supporting Black businesses, we've seen major growth, like even our Instagram following, like we've almost doubled. Wow. Which is crazy, you know, for a brand page, like to almost gain 50,000 new followers in a matter of two, three weeks. Like that's insane. Huge. And is that translating to sales? Yes, 100%. We've had like our best sales month ever in the history of our company. And that is attributed to people wanting to support Black business. It's Black people posting and buying. It's mixed race people. It's Hispanic people. And it's white people as well. And it's also like other like big beauty brands, like a Summer Fridays, for example, posted us. Like these are huge brands that have like hundreds of thousands of followers that are sharing with their followers, like, hey, check out this brand. It's been amazingly helpful. And I'm trying to, you know, pay it forward as well. Like I posted a huge list of black owned businesses, which is actually still in my highlights on my Instagram page. And I'm supporting as well. Like I bought like so many products. (laughs) (laughs) As far as KNC growing, do you feel that's about people discovering you for the first time or wanting to support or a culmination of all those things? a mixture, but I think it's more of people just discovering that we exist. Actually, Beyonce, excuse me, they just posted a list of black owned businesses and PNC Beauty was on it. We're officially Beyonce approved right now. I think so long as you're approved in the hive, you have officially made it. Yeah. Right. Maybe I should make like a beehive mask. A thousand percent. You should. Okay. One thing that we love talking about with people is the idea that you get to design the life that fits you. And it may Mm -hmm. look very different from how you grew up, but that you ultimately get to decide what success looks like, what sort of life you want to have. And I wonder growing up, did you have a sense of what having it all looked like for you? I mean, definitely. I think I, I really just thought like having it all was being rich. You know, I just always wanted to be rich because we weren't rich. But my mom was amazing. Like she did a really great job of raising us. And she, there was a time where she did have a lot of money based on where we lived. And I remember she, I I was riding horses. And so when I first started riding horses, my mom couldn't afford lessons. So I would clean stalls to pay for those lessons. And then she ended up like acquiring this business and she had it for about 10 years and she was able to buy me my own horse. And I just Hello. remember that is so expensive, but I, you know, we ended up losing that business. And then, so it's kind of like, we started like poor and then we had money and then we, we went back to being poor. So, you know, in those down times, it, for me, it was like, I just want to be rich when I grow up because when you're poor, all of your problems can usually be solved by money. So you think like, that's the key. Like if I have money, everything's going to be perfect. And obviously now that I have a little bit of money, I know that that's not the case at all. It's not? No, it's (laughs) not. But yeah, I mean, you know, when you're little, you just, you don't really know. And I think that for me, realizing that I was always chasing money. Like I need to do this. I need to do that. Like if I have, if I have this kind of closet, I'll be happy. If I have this car or this house or whatever. And I think definitely during this quarantine has made me really realize like 
because you haven't, I haven't been able to go out and show off my outfits or my makeup looks or my weave or whatever, you know? So it's like the stuff, it really doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Right. And don't you think that now looking back on it too, that your mom sort of maybe inadvertently helped you number one, to establish a work ethic. There's something so important about establishing an understanding of how things work and the value of money and the exchange of how much work has to go into that to be able to afford certain things. And I think one of the biggest disservices that people can do to kids, especially is to not make them aware of that. And when you don't have value for things, then you have nothing to work towards. And in a way, even though you felt on the back foot, it really probably propelled you into having motivation and wanting to have success and wanting to establish yourself, which you wouldn't have if everything had been given to you. Yeah. And I worry about that with like my kids, for example, like we literally just spent so much money on like my son's fourth grade graduation present. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Like I'm buying him like all this stuff. And I'm like, he's a one, they don't even appreciate it. Of course he loved it and was, you know, very happy, but it's was like, it a horse? No, it was a PC. <laughs> it was a gamer PC. He's a gamer, but <laughs> hopefully you can start making money on those games. Can't, can't they make money uh, on those games now with like Fortnite and, and stuff? I let him have YouTube. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to find the balance because it, one part of me, it's like, you, you want to work so hard so that your kids don't have to work so hard. Right. But then you see that your kids are turning into little brats and you're like, no, you know, like it's, it's all about, it's all about balance. I don't know. Yeah. To be honest. (laughs) No one has the answer. And I think, especially right now, I think people are trying to overcompensate because we know how we all feel with everything we're going through. And then, like you said earlier, your kids aren't having any exposure to their friends and they're not going to school like normal kids and they're stuck in the house. So if you have the access to giving them something that you feel will make it a little better for them, it probably balances out down the road. Mm -hmm. So moving forward, how did you move to LA? How did you break through into, I know you have your hand in so many things in retail, you've designed jewelry and now obviously with KNC, how did that start for you? I moved to LA to go to school. I never ended up going because I moved to LA with $250 and I moved in with my friend, my girlfriend, and I just didn't have the money to like go to school. I like, I had to get a job, you know? So I got a job at Hooters on Hollywood Boulevard. You know, What is the prerequisite for that? I mean, is it the Hooters? I I didn't want to say it, Kristen, but I think you have a beautiful body, but I I would not have. They're very small. You would not have pegged me as a Hooters girl. I will, I could find pictures actually, but I think they kind of probably just want like a cute little face and girl like, in the orange shorts, right? Yeah. Like it was honestly the most misogynistic workplace environment. I Thank can't you. imagine. So like those gross guys that come in there, like you have to sit down and have at least a five minute conversation with them. No. And, it, and there's probably no complaining about it because that's part of the business model, right? Right. Exactly. And then I was working, I was taking like odd jobs, like anything I could. I actually answered a Craigslist ad for American Apparel. This is another super, oh, right. okay. super interesting uh, situation that I was in. I entered an ad for to be an underwear model. So it was literally just waist kind of down. You're just modeling the panties and they ended up liking me and using me a lot. And so I became like, one of the original like American apparel models. Like I was on 
billboards and buses in every store, pretty much. Like, what was that like for you? You're from a small town in Illinois, and then you're on yeah. billboards in Los Angeles. Yeah. It much must have been a real pinch me moment. I was on my whole storefront at this one American Apparel in Brooklyn or like Harlem, I think it was. Wow. Like I have pictures of like these like guys like eating sandwiches at the bus stop, and there's two huge like photos of me behind it. It was, it was kind of crazy. I mean, this was like American Apparel at its height. So at that time, was beauty something that was always really important to you or did you fall into that? I mean, I always liked makeup and hair and things like that. I never really knew how to do it. I never had, you know, back then there wasn't YouTube channels or anything like that. Like I feel like makeup artists existed, but only for pop actresses and things like that. It was not how it is now. Right. Even skincare, it's like you went to the drugstore and I think I used, shit, I don't even know, maybe Noxema or something like that. Like that's what I used. It wasn't until I started traveling. And actually when I met my husband, I met him back in Chicago. And so I had moved to LA after I met him. And your husband's also a fashion designer. Yes. And he owns a store, RSVP Gallery in Chicago and LA. And he actually is the one that introduced me to this Japanese skincare brand called Kanebo, which is very fancy. And they only sell it at Bergdorf's or in Japan. And it's mm-hmm. a double cleansing, double moisturizing system. So I had acne growing up and I just never really, you know, knew how to deal with that. When I started this system that he gave me and put me on to, my skin changed overnight. So that was kind of the aha, you know, moment where I was like, wow, like products and things like that can really like change your skin. So definitely traveling and being introduced to things um, by my husband and his friends and whoever else, that was what kind of like introduced me to that world. Right. So you all of a sudden, your whole world opened up to something that you had never really been exposed to. Yeah. And so did that then spark your interest in creating beauty yourself? No. So it sparked my interest into trying everything, into experimenting with everything. I wasn't really, I didn't even really think about um, starting my own brand because I felt like there were so many things out there. Like, what would I do? You know, it wasn't even a thought for me, honestly. Um, When Instagram came out, I was really vocal in skincare. And I feel like that was way before self-care was a thing. Um, yeah, I basically invented self-care as well. I guess, saying. sorry, I should have really introduced you as Kristen Noel Crawley, the inventor of self-care. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> yeah, it just wasn't really like, a th- I feel like Instagram was so new. It was like, what do you even do with this thing? You know, you just post pictures. So I post pictures traveling and you know, this was before stories, any of that. Um, so then I just started posting like products that I was using. And Julie Schott, who was the head beauty editor at L.com, she reached out to me and asked if I would want to do like my own column for L.com about like my favorite things. And I was like, oh, yeah, I want to do that, you know. So that's where it kind of like professionally started. And it was awesome because I could just hit up a company and be like, hey, I write for L.com. Can you send me this, this and that? Right. You must and have had packages coming to the house. Yes. Move over Canabo. I mean, I had every product on the sun. It was amazing. And I traveled a lot. So whenever I was in like Paris or New York or whatever, I'd hit up spas and be like, hey, can I cover this treatment for L.com? This sounds a little sketch now that I'm saying it, but I literally, I covered everything. 
when we first met, I remember you saying to me, you know, I'm, I always curate. I've always been a curator. Did yes. you find that you're sort of really well suited for that medium? Definitely. I mean, I've been a curator before Instagram, you know, like I curate my home, I curate my closet. Like even when I didn't have money, I always wanted things to look nice. Back then it was like going thrift shopping or Goodwill. I love the Goodwill. You know, it was always just like having things aesthetically pleasing. So I think Instagram was the perfect medium for me. I've never been like a Twitter person. So Instagram is like, I can just show you what I want to show you. I don't even have to talk about it. I don't even have to say anything. You just, you see it. And you're more sort of visually stimulated. Yes. Obviously now we live in a super comparative culture, right? So how do you balance your ability to use it on behalf of the brand? And obviously you, you have your own separate pages, but to do that in a way that feels authentic to you and not be bogged down in the comparison game. I mean, there was definitely a time and I, it still sometimes happens where I'll, I'll catch myself comparing myself to, and it's always like a girl that looks like, like very similar to me or has like a similar style. I feel like we're always, always grouped into the same, like, oh, there's Kristen and there's her. And then, you know, so it's very easy for that to happen. So what I do is like disconnect for one. I don't look at other people, what they're doing. You know, I think that's very important. And for two is like really just kind of like, is this me or is this something that I know will get a lot of likes or whatever? Like I really had to stop doing that because what I found is that I'm more appeasing to the people that are following me rather than like, you know, introducing them to something new or, you know, something that they're not used to seeing for fear of like not getting the same interaction or engagement. Right. And so I had to think about like, why are these people following me? They're following me because they like me or something about me, right? They don't want me to be like everybody else. What's the point? So it's really just like having to take a step back and like really realize that the reason why I've gotten this far is because of my uniqueness. So I need to keep it that way. Right. You have to keep the blinders on and just focus on your own lane and not worry too much about what everybody else is doing. What was the aha moment for the brand? So it was on a trip to Tokyo, actually. And um, Japan is a really big inspiration to me just in general. So it was, I believe, my second or third time traveling there. I went actually with Dior Beauty because I'm an ambassador for them. And I was just kind of walking around the city. I went to Don Quixote, which is like the target of Japan, right? So I'm going through the beauty aisles and everything's in Japanese. I can't really read anything, but I'm just like adding all these things to my basket. And one was a little sachet with like a picture of lips on it. And it was like, I asked somebody what it was and they said a lip mask. And I thought it was really cool. One, because I'd never seen that before. And two, because I'm from the Midwest and my lips would get crazy chapped and I take care of my lips, you know, so I just could never really figure out why that was. So I thought this was like a cool product. I'd never seen a lip mask before. Anyways, I used it. I liked it. But then I looked on the back and there were literally like 50 ingredients for this small little thing, like all types of chemicals, additives, parabens, everything. So when I got back to the States, I tried to look for a natural version and it didn't exist. And that's when the light bulb kind of went off 
because I already, I like, I like the idea of it. Um, and I could just create my own formula so that it's natural. And I did. But you're saying that, so I could just create my own formula. So it's natural, mm-hmm. but do you know anything about creating a formula? Do you know a person oh, to call? No. I mean, I you're was so uh, cavalier. I, was, I know. So I mean, I'll tell you exactly how it happened. So I was, you know, a beauty writer, like it, I wasn't a chemist or manufacturer or anything. I didn't, and I actually didn't know anybody on the business side of beauty. I knew like the editors and like, you know, influencers and things like that. I didn't know anybody that actually had a skincare company or whatever. So I just did my due diligence online. You know, there's all types of sites that have like wholesale offerings. So I think it was Alibaba that I went on and I messaged, like I typed in lip mask and all this thing. And a few came up and I messaged all of them and none of them would give me a custom formula. They were like, no, we don't do that. Or it's like a million minimum order, right? A million units. And I'm like, I can't afford that. That was discouraging. And I almost didn't do it because I couldn't find somebody. After like three months, I found this one factory that would do it. I did, I had done all my research on like which ingredients were great for lips and moisturizing and hydration, right? Right. And you have a perfect market research job because you're testing all these other products that are out there. So you know what works, what doesn't work, what irritates you. So it's like the stars are aligning for this perfect moment. Yes, exactly. So I sent the guy who I actually still work with because they're amazing. I sent them, you know, what I wanted. They had the chemist formulated. I had to take out some ingredients and add some in, but we made sure it was all natural. Then I got samples and then I tried them out at that time. I didn't have, I didn't have the money for real testing. You know what I mean? So I kind of just tested them on my friends. And quantity wise, what were you thinking too? So that was another thing. So all of the factories wanted a minimum of a hundred thousand units. Wow. And I'm like, my God, that's a lot. This factory that I still work with to this day I was like, can you please like give me a low, a lower number? Like I can't afford this, blah, blah, blah. And so he let me do 30,000. That was a more attainable number for me. And while they were in production, actually this other mass company that was more established and more known actually came out with lip patches. I literally, it was literally three months before I was going to launch. No. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And that actually made me not want to do it because I didn't want to look like a copycat. Like I was so, I felt so defeated. I had worked on this project for almost three years. That's how long it took with going back with, with everything, like even down to like the labeling, like I didn't, I couldn't afford to have somebody to like look over it and make sure all of the verbiage was correct or all of the, you know, I had to research and do everything myself. So of course it took a lot longer. But I was just like so defeated and I was like, oh, you know, forget this. I'm not going to do it. Like, you know, whatever. And then I talked to like one or two of my friends and they really encouraged me to keep pushing. Like it's different. It looks different. You have different ingredients, blah, blah, blah. And I'm really, really happy that I listened because here I am today. I guess the moral of the story is that you're going to have so many setbacks. I don't know if you've ever, if you're familiar with this writer, Elizabeth Gilbert, she's the one who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, but she wrote this book about creativity and she has this theory that ideas, they sort of, they come in and when you get an idea, the idea is really out to everybody. Yes. You know, 
all the time. Okay. So that it's out to everybody. And really it's about whether or not you're going to answer the call. So it's like you were answering the call, but answering it at your own speed and at the ability that you could do so, right? Because you don't have the means to do a hundred thousand orders like an established brand and all of those things. But had you given up then the idea would kind of float on to the next person and you eventually see a lot of things that you have had the notion of doing come to fruition, whether or not you finalize them or not. Yeah. And like I nothing think, is singular to any of us. Right. And we don't own anything, no. right? Even thoughts in our mind. That's why it's crazy. Cause you're like, I didn't tell anybody about this. If this was literally like my greatest idea. And now I see it on, it's being marketed to me on Instagram through an ad. Right. Well, I think <laughs> that's because I'm pretty sure that they're listening to all of your they're conversations. In our, in our thoughts, actually. What have been the biggest challenges for you as far as starting a business because so finally you get it and you launch and then do you know anything about distribution? Are you planning to do direct to consumer? I I didn't really know anything. I just had, you know, I had my product. I knew that in doing my research, it was very interesting. So branding wise, I knew that I wanted it to look a certain way. I knew I wanted it to attract people when I did my research, I read that 60% of women will buy a product based on just how it looks. I'm definitely in that 60%. Yeah, literally so it, knew, it me. I wanted it to be cute and fun and effective. Other than that, I didn't really have a plan. I had a brunch for the launch of my website and, you know, I had like some great friends show up and support my business, which was awesome. And then actually, I, I think had, I was there. Is this the one I was at? At um, Isabel's. At Isabel, yes. yes. We were there. Yeah. So that was like really cool. I had like 20 people come and I had a great support system, right? So that obviously got the brand out in front of certain people. So actually the first person to reach out to KNC Beauty from a retailer perspective was Cassandra Gray from Violet Gray. and Which is like has, the mecca, the beauty mecca. Yeah. And, and prestige beauty at that. Not just like regular beauty products. Like they have to be like very, very. Was your price point, was your intention to be prestige? Did you have an idea of where you wanted it to be? Because I had a jewelry business before and it was fine jewelry. And like, I really, it got to a point where I was doing these ornate designs and they just weren't affordable. So I kind of wanted to go complete opposite with my next business and make it accessible to everybody. So the mask are $5, which I feel like for an all natural mask is pretty good. So I never thought of it as being a luxury product. And I never even thought about positioning it in the luxury space. It just happened to happen that way because Cassandra picked it up. And she has literally like turned into my fairy beauty godmother. Like I can call her or text her anytime for advice. Like we just had a conversation a few weeks ago and she was basically asking, how can she help the black community? Like, what can she do? And um, we were talking about, you know, bringing in more Black-owned brands to Violet Gray. And I told her, I said, having your stamp really solidified KNC Beauty in the industry. It made other retailers like Nordstrom's or a Neiman Marcus or a Net-A-Porter take note and look. Right. And for anyone who doesn't know about Violet Gray, it's essentially a curation of all of the, the best, best beauty, the best. the best of the best. So it's beauty, it's makeup, it's some wellness products and skincare and hair. But it also, like you said, 
it's like the authority on what is yeah. good. So all of a sudden you being carried by Violet Gray allows for everybody else to have the confidence to know that this is a quality product. Exactly. And after that, I believe it was Nordstrom's and then Neiman's and then Net-A-Porte. That's huge. Yeah. 2019, we got Sephora. And then here we are today. Now, did Sephora decide to participate in the 15% challenge? They did. I wonder if, you know, I know you're mentioning something like that with Violet Gray. I don't know, you know, if that's something that more retailers are going to. I think they are. I think a lot of them. We need Target. We need Whole Foods. We need all of the really big retailers. Yeah. And I hope that it's not just 15%. I hope that is like the bare minimum because there are so many amazing brands out there that don't have the resources that, you know, a big brand with a lot of capital or investors or like a a famous person behind them, you know, they don't have that. So these retailers need to realize that they can really support and promote these brands. And in turn, you're providing opportunities and generational wealth for the black community when their family run. But you know what I mean? Of course. It's a, it's a cycle. So, I mean, I think they're starting to realize that and, you know, get on, get on the wagon and big ups for, for Aurora James, who started that initiative. Right. Well, what I loved so much about that, it's a little bit like Cassandra's call to you. You know, I think that there are a lot of people who, whether it was well-received sometimes or not, were like, what, what can we do? How can we make this better in any way? And what I really liked about what she did was obviously Aurora is not only a business owner herself, but that she at home came back with the idea of the 15% pledge. And she said, one thing you can do is this. And she's really calling out on all retailers to do, like you said, at least a bare minimum of having their shelf space be represented by black owned businesses and making sure that there is more diversity in terms of what is being offered in a lot of these bigger chain stores. Which is incredible. Yeah. And also a support system too for these small businesses. You know, you can't just pick up a business and then say, here it is. And then just walk away. Like you need to support these businesses. You need to uplift them. You need to give the founders advice. You need to, you know, kind of teach them and grow with them along the way. Right. And like you said, it's, you had never had a business before. So a lot of it is that the sort of learning pains learning curve, yeah, and the learning curve that happens along the way. Um, and now you have launched two additional products, right? And, and are about to launch another. We have five SKUs. So we've got the lip mask, the eye mask, the two flavors of the super bomb, and then we have super scrub. And then we have a new product coming out in a few weeks. And it's actually like three products in one but they're face masks. So we're really excited about that. And they're biodegradable and they're vegan and they're paraben free and, you know, all that good stuff. How are you, as far as business-wise, are you really strategic in terms of goal setting? And I mean this as far as your personal and your professional life. You know, as you launch your business, do you have markers where you would feel a certain amount of success or no? It's more kind of like as things unfold. the worst businesswoman. I'm so disorganized and like very guerrilla kind of style with it because like when I put out my first product, I did not expect it to do so well. I was just like, oh, this is something that's not really on the market and I kind of want to just have. And then it kind of turned into a real business. So I've been 
trying to play catch up. I feel like right now it's almost been four years. So I've kind of, I'm on track now, but before, like I never had a plan. Like I kind of roll with life, but I do think that when you have a plan and you set goals for yourself, they're easier to attain. And then once you have that all written down and you achieve those goals, then you can feel a real sense of satisfaction. Because what I realized is that when I didn't have things written down, I didn't have a plan, I would achieve major things and they wouldn't even register. Right. Yeah. And it is. So I think it is very important to have, you know, have that organization and everything set in place so that when you're reaching your goals, you're, you're celebrating them and then you're, you know, taking it all in and then you're on to the next. Right. I think that's the whole thing too, is that sometimes you're so in it and you don't actually even see because you don't get to pull the lens back enough to see how far you've come and how many major milestones you have already met with something that you set out to do because you're, you're sort of in it. And like you said, you're kind of gorilla about it. So you're probably wearing a thousand hats and, Mm -hmm. you know, doing a little bit of everything. And so you don't necessarily get to ever pause and really take the victory. And I wonder that as far as, you know, happiness, we always kind of think is around the next bend or going back to what you said about being a kid, like I'll be happy when I have this kind of life, when I have this Mm -hmm. kind of money, when I have this kind of closet. And when you get all those things and you realize wherever you go, there you are, and it's still you, it's just a bigger closet, Mm -hmm. then what? And I think that there's something about being more goal oriented and at least establishing what are the things that I want to accomplish so that you can look at those posts and realize that you've actually accomplished a lot more than you thought you were. Yeah, that's very important. Yeah, I I need to get better at that. Especially like, for example, like when I have a new product, I do the development for the products. I test the products. I have, you know, I work on the formulation with the chemist. I work on the artwork. I order all the packaging. I do literally everything. And so by the time that a product comes out and is ready to launch, I'm over it. I don't even want to, I don't even want to, you want to kind of close the book on it. I've been working on it for like nine plus months, you know? So like our new product, which is launching in like a few weeks. And I'm trying to just remember like how hard I work to get this out it's coming, it's going to be amazing. And then to also like relish in that moment. I don't know if I figured that out 100% all the way, but I definitely am aware of it. Shifting into personal, I don't know if you're familiar with the metaphor of a woman's life being like a stove with all the burners going simultaneously, but basically the notion being that sometimes you have to put some things on simmer to really boil in other areas. Do you think, is that Mm -hmm. something that you can relate to? Definitely. I can't focus 100% on my business because I do have a husband and children and especially like my children, like I'll notice when I'm have a really busy like work project or something like that, like I'm more neglectful of them and it's not fair. So it takes a toll on my work. But at the end of the day, I I told my girlfriend who she's in the same boat. Her name is Aziza. You know, know Aziza. Aziza. Yeah. She's got a little girl too. And, and I was like, you know what? Like, if I'm 50 years old and I've sold my company for a hundred million dollars and I'm like living life, I'm on my yacht or whatever. God, I hope you call I'm me. Gonna be, I know, right? 
But I was telling her, I'm going to be really sad if my kids aren't on that yacht with me because they don't mess with me because I wasn't around or because I was too busy working and putting work first rather than them. So like at the end of the day, my kids are only going to be small for a short time. I want to make sure that I'm there for them and that they know that their mother loves them more than work or more than any materialistic thing or whatever. And then hopefully, you know, I still have my yacht and my kids are there. Right. And you can have your cake and eat it too. But have you ever had a time where you feel like you're kind of crushing it in one, one area or the other, but like you said, you're killing it in work, but your home life is suffering or vice versa? No, there's always going to be something that is getting more attention. I just feel like there are times where I do need to give my, my business more attention. Like, for example, I've got this launch in a few weeks. Right now, I need to give my business a lot of attention to make sure this is successful. Once I'm done with this launch, then I can chill. Then I can go back to spending as much time as I can with my kids. We can do fun stuff. We can even take a trip. You know what I mean? But like right now, i got to kind of focus on this. So it's always the scale of going up and down. But um, I think it's just kind of weighing and discerning which you know area I need to focus more on at the time, right? Right. In a way, so, though, it's like that multitasking. I don't know how it is for you, but it sometimes makes you feel like you're actually failing at everything. Same. And so that's, you know, the whole notion of having it all. It's like, is that something that you even believe in? Can you do it all? Or do you think that you, it's a setup to make no. us all feel yeah. bad all the time? Can't have it all. And I, I mean, I know people that are very successful, very famous, whatever, that seems like they might have it all in their, you know, it's like, no one has it all. It's not possible. It doesn't matter how many nannies you have. It doesn't matter how many people are running your business or how many housekeepers or whatever. This system of things is not meant for us to have it all. It's meant for you to keep trying and keep going and never feeling satisfied. So I've kind of let that go of like, this isn't how it's supposed to be, or this isn't perfect, or I'm going to be happy once I get to this. And once I have this, like I have to be happy in the now and I have to balance things and I have to make my life and my situation work for me. Right. And also that you realize you can't have it all simultaneously. And so you got to take the victories where you can and just Mm -hmm. realize that we're all doing the best that we can. Took me a long time to realize that. Though. For like, sure. I feel like I just realized that in this past year. Like it's never going to happen. Don't you think that there's something about the quarantine too? Also that you realize that the pace that we have been going at is untenable. Oh my gosh. I was so burnt out. I mean, just being forced to slow down and the and also to the whole world slowing down, not just you, because I think definitely, you know, I'm also a little bit in the fashion world too. And it's like, this calendar is crazy. You know, these brands expect you to be at every show in Paris, like every two, three months. And you're like, I can't keep up with this, but then I don't want to use it, lose the relationship, but then I don't want to be away from my kids for four or five days. And, you know, it's like, you're just, you feel like you're being pulled in like a million different directions. And I think for me, like having that slowdown, but then also having everybody else have to slow down too. The fact that I wasn't feeling like I was missing out. Yeah. It eliminates the FOMO for sure. Right. It eliminated the FOMO. And then it also made you realize like, wow, that shit is really not important at all. Right. Like it's actually kind of whack. 
Yeah. You know, a hundred percent. And now I think that'll be interesting to see how we all adjust back into our lives. You know, the whole thing of, well, we're not going to go back to normal because normal wasn't working. So what's going to work right. for us moving forward where you feel like you have the essentials covered and you're taking care of the things that you need and you're maintaining your relationships, IRL, mm. not just doing all of the support over social, but you never really see people and you're not connecting with people. How do we get back to that? I agree. I mean, I went to, this is a little taboo, but I went to my friend released an album. Oh yes. Last. Yeah. I went to her party. I didn't want to go because I was so scared, but then I was like, oh my gosh, she's going to be mad at me. So I went and I wore my mask and, you know, um, and it was outside. So that made me feel more comfortable, but like, it was just so nice to have like interaction with people. And I'm like, wow, this is what it's really about is like having interaction with your loved ones and your friends and being around your family and, and being, you know, out in nature. And, you know, it's just, now I kind of like, I just want to retire, you know? Yeah. Now you're like living the simple life. Yeah, definitely. I guess so that brings me to my conclusion, which is what is having it all look like to you today? I know the notion, the societal notion doesn't exist, but for you, Kristen Noel Crowley, what is having it all look like to you today? It changes, but I think for right now, it's definitely having a strong relationship with God, having a healthy and strong and very secure relationship with my husband and marriage, of course. And then, you know, having a great relationship with my children and my family, my friends, the house, the cars, the clothes. Like when I think about like what having it all means, that doesn't even register in my mind anymore. Like I've always been a very materialistic person. Of course, I still like to dress up and all of these things, but it doesn't move me anymore. If I buy something, it doesn't even really affect me. It's like, okay, that's cool. But like for me, this time has been really telling. And what really truly makes me happy is being with my family. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, so something I'm workshopping is called the Riff, and it could be a service, a product, a practice, anything that you feel like you try to do frequently that makes your life better. I guess my Riff would be spending time in nature. And I know I've said this like so many times throughout this whole time, but it's really important whether it's riding our bikes around the neighborhood. My husband and I now go on like nightly walks. I love that. Like around dusk and we just talk and we walk and we look around and we look at the neighbors like fruit trees and, you know, landscaping and things like that. Or, you know, we'll swim out in the backyard. Like we never used to use our pool. It's crazy. We like swim almost every day now. So like just being out there soaking up that like natural vitamin D breathing in the nice air. Like that is now like an everyday necessity for me. I used to stay inside or like just be in the car and like ripping and running. You know what I mean? Like now I just, I really cherish being and connecting with nature. I love that. Kristen, for anyone who doesn't follow you, where can they find you? My Instagram, which is very poppin is I agree. at, <laughs> is at Kristen Noel Crawley. And then my business Instagram is at KNC Beauty. All right. Thank you so much for being here today. I love, I love you taking it back to the simple things. Yes. The simple life.
and all your honesty. Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. Bye. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review only the good stuff. Of course, hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and spread the word to all of your friends. Thanks for joining and please follow along at having it all podcast. See you next week.